So last week we started a new sermon series entitled Dear Church. Matthew Ruffner was here and uh, he got us started and we are taking a look at the letters of the Apostle Paul and we're exploring what unique messages he sent to the churches that he founded throughout the ancient Near East. He had a great love for the people in each of these places, in each of these communities, and it was his love for them and his passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ that motivated him to write words of encouragement, words to challenge them, words to repair broken relationships, and to remind the people of their identity as followers of Jesus Christ. It's noteworthy that nearly two-thirds of the New Testament is written by Paul. These letters not only have historical significance for the life of the church and for individual lives, they are consequential for how our lives are lived today and how the church functions today. How do we live in community amidst the social divides that exist How do we prioritize the needs of the whole when we think about our own personal needs? How do we faithfully follow those who've been called to lead in this season when we may disagree with their leadership? How do we care for those on the margins of society? These are the kinds of questions that we want to keep top of mind as We consider these letters and we consider Paul's words to the churches as we focus on his writing. What advice does he give? What wisdom does he offer? On what topics is he silent? To use modern vernacular, what best practices can we discover for today that the first century church embodied or failed to If I'm honest, I would say that I've been on the fence about Paul much of my life, mainly because of how the church has historically used his words to exclude and to divide. But I've evolved a bit, as have many I know. In fact, I look to Paul for words of comfort a lot. One of the great privileges of ministry for me is journeying with people who are experiencing loss in their life and who are grieving. As they work through their grief and and sorrow and the loss of a loved one, or as they struggle with the loss of a job or the breakup of a relationship that has been meaningful to them, as they are fearful entering retirement, or their sense of independence is whittled away by the aging process and their health is declining. Such seasons of our lives may render us speechless when we want to be in support of another, but we really don't know what to say. It's difficult to know what to say at times, and sometimes that just might be an indication that what we need to do is to simply be there, to show up, to hold silent space for another person. In multiple letters, Paul uses language to describe what it looks like to be a faithful person. For example, in Colossians, he uses the imagery of clothing oneself, completing his thought by saying, 
clothe yourself with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul offers words of hope in the face of death and sorrow. In his second letter to the church at Corinth, he describes our bodies as our earthly tent. And that when that earthly tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He uses this imagery that I think really speaks to us as we try to imagine what it is that he might be talking about. And to the church at Rome, he writes from his own personal conviction that he believes nothing in heaven and on earth can separate us from the love of God. This is from Romans 8, 37 and 38. And it is one of my favorite passages because it is so in-your-face encouraging. Nothing we experience, nothing we do or do not do, nothing separates us from the love of God. As mind-blowing as that can be, I ascribe to that belief, and I will tell anyone who will listen to me and encourage them in the same way. The rub comes, though, when I stop and ask you to think of that one person in your life, that one person in your life who has wronged you, that other person in your life who, in your judgment, has just gone off the rails in the last couple of years politically, that other person in your family who pushes every button you have, yes, Even for all of those people, they get God's love too. Because nothing separates us from God's love. God is love. And we are all a part of God's family. We are all a part of the body of Christ. Thank God, right? Because we have to know that we come to some people's minds when being asked that question, think of that one person that drives you crazy, we might be that person they think of. Yeah. So, yes, thank God. Thank God nothing separates us from God's love. And thank God for Paul's words of encouragement. That brings me to today's letter. His first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 5, beginning at verse 11. I invite you now to hear God's word for you this day. Therefore, encourage one another and build up each other, as indeed you are doing. But we appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and have charge of you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, beloved, to admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Be patient with all of them. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. 
For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise the words of prophets, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. In the days after my mother died, I found myself sitting in her home, trying to make sense of it all. She had died rather suddenly. It was an unexpected loss, and I was just at a loss. All the relatives lived at a distance, and so they had not come yet to be with me in Houston. And I had some friends in town, and they had been attentive and supportive, but at the moment, I was there alone, and I was just looking around, and I was just taking in the reality of it all. I found a box that contained some cards and some letters and some photographs, and I started to look through it, and I recognized many of the names and some of the faces, but not all of them. And I wanted to let as many people as I could know about her passing and to invite them to come and to celebrate and to remember her at the, on the appointed day. One of the notes I read led me to believe that a friendship existed, so I reached out only to discover that a friendship used to exist. I had misinterpreted the time and the place. I had not paid attention to the date that was a good 10 or 12 years earlier. And, you know, I was caught up in the emotions. And that happens. Context makes all the difference. And that seems especially true when we consider the letters of Paul. Paul wrote the letter that we know as 1 Thessalonians around 51 CE which makes it the earliest Christian writing and the earliest evidence that we possess for the existence of the Christian faith. His intended audience was mostly Gentiles who had become believers in Israel's God and in Jesus as God's son. They knew God and they knew God well. By the time Paul wrote to the people there, Thessalonica was a bustling cosmopolitan city. It had been under Roman rule for over two centuries, although culturally it remained a Greek city. It was the capital of the province of Macedonia and therefore the seat of Roman administration. It was politically significant. Because it was a port city and it was located on a major Roman highway, the Via Ignatia, its residents would have been exposed to a wide variety of social and cultural influences, and there was also a wide variety of religious practices. And those practices were in place long before the advent of Christianity. While Paul was there with his associates, something forced them to leave the city. Despite their efforts to return, by the time he wrote this letter, Paul has not been able to do so. He's not been able to return to the city. While he waits in Athens, he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica. Timothy returns with an encouraging report, and it is that report that leads to this letter. 
Paul's letter is one of pastoral care. He cares for the people there. In its opening lines, he uses familiar language of faith, hope, and love by affirming their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He encourages them by recalling the ways in which the Thessalonians' faith in the gospel of Christ came alive in one city. He pours out the apostles' love for this group, for this group of believers, and he urges that same love among them. He was just acutely aware of the challenges that they would face. Being a city of political importance, there would be conflict. There would be conflict between the political forces and the religious forces. And the people there, the people that he had come to love, would be in the midst of it. And so he wanted to encourage them that they were remembered by him, even if he couldn't be there in person. He recognized their confident hope in Christ and their looking forward to his return. My seminary professor, Beverly Gaventa, notes that Paul views the suffering of the Thessalonians and the challenges that they face and the separation that existed between Paul and his friends and the Thessalonians, he views all of this situation in the larger context of the conflict, conflict between good and evil, between God the provider and the forces that wanted uh, no good for them, that wanted to destroy them. As I spoke of earlier, highlighting other of his letters, Paul comforts the grieving In this case, he does so with the promise that all people of faith will be reunited with Christ and reunited with the great cloud of witnesses, with the people who have gone before. He challenges his readers to care for the people on the margins. What Paul encourages in this challenge is it goes well beyond the whole idea of just making nice with those who are a bother. Making nice to these people. It, it is active involvement that seeks their welfare, that seeks their good. And by doing so, their good is everyone's good because we are all a part of the body, all a part of the body of Christ. And then he inserts this in his letter. To be at peace. Everyone be at peace. It's just, it's a short sentence that kind of connects two parts of it. I kind of think of it as a throwaway, although no part of scripture is really a throwaway. But he says, be at peace. And how hard is it to be at peace all the time with a group of people? to be patient with the discouraged, the weak, the disorderly? How much easier is it to lose patience and to offer them only meager tolerance in place of an earnest effort to do good to one another and to all? 
Paul's instructions are a profound challenge to the way things are, to the way that we might ordinarily relate in our busy lives. Sometimes we are not patient. We are merely indifferent. And then he talks about the Spirit. And he encourages his readers not to quench the Spirit. What exactly, why does it matter? Why does it matter whether the Spirit is put out or not? The flame of the Spirit. Well, he, he, he considers worship, the life of worship, and he considers the fact that it is the Spirit that prompts us to care for those on the margins. So that when we are not paying attention to the Spirit and the Spirit's movement in our lives, we miss these opportunities. From Dr. Gaventa once again, she says, When Paul says to give thanks in everything, give thanks in everything, it presupposes two truths. The first being that the worship of God is the context for all of life. It's not just the part that we devote to God during the times that we gather for worship in a setting just like this. Yes, this is certainly worship. But our everyday lives must become itself worship, must become itself a prayer, or at least that's what we're being encouraged to make manifest. If all of life is worship for those who seek to follow God, then thanks, thanksgiving is a necessary and inevitable product. But Paul does not say thanks should be governed by circumstance. The thanks is governed by the life of worship. So that if it is our ordinary practice in our day-to-day living to think of whatever it is that we are doing as worshiping God, then a natural uh, outward expression of that is thanks, thanksgiving. The second truth that Paul presupposes is that life's depths are not not solely its surfaces, must capture our attention. The depths of life the deep water, if you will, that we enter into so often must capture our attention. I love that truth because it is a reality of our lives that we find ourselves in the deep more often than not. The theologian Paul Tillich speaks of the depth of existence as the ground of our historical life, the ultimate depth of history. Tillich's words are not a call to keep near the shallow waters where thoughts are restricted to appearances near the shore. Yet many of us are inclined to stay near such shallow waters. And we judge our lives by visible, surface, and superficial factors. The occasional good things or bad things that happen to us Paul's challenge for us, the Apostle Paul, is to move to a depth where there are weightier truths that make it possible for us to give perpetual thanks. 
What does that mean? Weightier truths. He points out to his readers and to us today that when we find ourselves in the deepest, darkest waters, those are inevitably the times that we're going to give God great thanks for getting us through those times, for getting us through those difficulties. Because when we're in the shallow part of the water, when we're closer to the shore, we're not thinking about the need to thank God. We're having fun. We're talking to our friends. We're noticing the beauty around us. But when we are in the deep, we are fighting for our lives. And that's when we stop and we say, oh my goodness, God, thank you so much for preserving my life. As an aside, I was thinking about the depths of this water and I was reminded I've been watching the Olympics, not all the time, but a little bit here and there. And I just caught this, the, the, the new version of synchronized swimming. Anybody? The artistic swimming, they call it. It's interesting. But the thing that I find particularly interesting is that the camera shots are often of the, the side so that you can see what's going on underneath the water. And that's quite fascinating. Because these teams of people are upside down, in the water, doing all this stuff with their legs. So Michelle and I are on the couch, and we're saying to each other, we can't do that stuff with our legs, even sitting here on the couch. Much less, much less upside down, underwater. And they can't touch. It's deep there, and they're making it happen. And presumably, they like one another, and they're synchronized. That's the whole point. But it just, it just had me thinking about, you know, treading water. Well, that's, that's tough. And when, when, you cannot, when you cannot see, when you cannot know what's next, that's the time that we really reach for God and we thank God for looking out for us. Paul is encouraging us to have that same orientation when we're by the shore, in the shallow waters, to say thank you and to have that be something that that comes straight from how we experience life. First Thessalonians is about faith and hope and love, not as human attributes, but as gifts that spring from God alone. It is God who calls into faith, God who enables human love, and God toward whom hope is directed. As we live our lives, sometimes in the deep, dark waters, sometimes near the shore, may we remember that there is never a time that we live apart from God's grace and God's mercy, God's love and God's care. And may all find comfort in these promises today and every day. All thanks be to God. Amen.